Good morning. The scripture this morning is taken from two books, one old, one new, uh, first from Genesis and later from Galatians. You may find and follow along on pages six and seven of your worship guide. From Genesis, God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. And from Galatians, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The word of God for the people of God. So picture with me, if you would, an ostrich on the desert plains with its head stuck in the ground. And a herd of water buffalo are stampeding directly towards that ostrich. What do you think its chances of survival are if it keeps its head in the ground? Huh? Oh, come on, you can talk back a little bit. Pretty close to, like, none, right? Okay. Right? If the ostrich doesn't pull its head out of the ground and run the other direction or away, it runs a pretty extreme risk of being run over by the stampede. Many local United Methodist churches are like the ostrich today. We have our heads in the sand. And there is a rushing controversy around us, a timely, sensitive topic that keeps getting brought up year after year, regarding same-sex marriage and ordination. And and many of us in our local United Methodist churches, we would prefer that this just simply pass us by. We would like to put our head in the sand and hope that it just goes around us and doesn't affect us in the local church. And yet the reality of it is, is every single one of our local churches will be affected by decisions that are going to be made through commissions and the general church. It's just how we choose to deal with this topic that's going to either set us up for good conversation or set us up for reacting to the circumstances. So 
in conversation with your board, and, and we've just kind of decided this is the time for us as a church to have this conversation ourselves, to talk about the, this timely, sensitive topic of human sexuality and where we as a congregation might find ourselves in discernment and in conversation with one another. Now, somebody asked me why, why we need to talk about this, why we might think about it. And, and it's because there's a lot of people who live around St. John's. If you didn't notice this, this church is not on an island all by itself somewhere, right? It's not a vacuum either. We have neighbors that live all around our church who don't know much about us, and so they make some pretty bold assumptions about who we are and what we might believe. And if we remain silent on these things, then some of their assumptions will be false assumptions about us. So aren't we better off as a church conversing, discerning, and then letting our neighbors know what it is we believe instead of allowing our neighbors to simply formulate their own perspectives, even though they might be false? I would say we're better off doing this. Now, I also recognize that a lot of us were raised in a certain social construct that taught us that we don't talk about such things in polite company and church is polite company, right? We, we might have been raised that way, you know. But this is no longer the 1950s. This is 2017. This is the era of things like MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, right? And if any of you have ever followed any one or multiples of these, you will know that they bust the mythology of silence on any topic whatsoever. Everything is fair game in the social media sphere, including the debate on human sexuality. So, dear friends, my proposal to you is, is that we get with it, that we find ourselves in the conversation, discerning, trying to understand. Some of you might remember an old rhyme. It, it was a, a playground rhyme. You may have found yourself saying this to, about someone else, but I, I have a guarantee the moment I start this, a, a number of you are going to remember exactly where I'm headed in this rhyme, right? It starts out, Jane and Joe sitting in a tree. What's next? K-I-S-S-I-N-G, Right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Jane and Joe pushing a baby carriage, right? You think about that. As much as that was just one of those silly little things that we as kids used to say to one another and tease other kids who, who liked some girl or liked some boy, right? There is a traditional values-laden message in that little rhyme. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes children. It's kind of an order that we have in mind. For many of us, we might hold to this kind of traditional view regarding human relationships and sexuality. It is the proper order within the confines of proper gender is married together for the fulfillment of what God has in mind, and that is the procreation of humanity. I want to tell you a story of three sisters. Right? The oldest of the sisters had a dream of going to college, wanted to study art. But midway through her, her junior to senior year, she broke up with her high school boyfriend. And that kind of had a, a profound impact on her. And she started dating around 
with other boys and things like that. It, it interrupted her college plans. She found herself a couple years after high school pregnant, even though she wasn't married. Her boyfriend of the time, they decided to move in together. And then they, a few years later, after things kind of worked its way out, they decided to get married. And they got married in a local church. Even though she married the father of the child, there was still kind of that stigma that they didn't exactly take the traditional route towards things in life. The, the middle sister graduated from high school, went off to college, and played soccer in college. Now, growing up, she always had an interest in boys. She'd always talk about the boys. She'd always talk about how many babies she wanted when she grew up. She wanted a litter full, right? Not a couple, lots of babies. She always talked about how many she wanted. But midway through college, something shifted for her. Her sexual orientation went from boys to women. And so she started dating women and eventually met the one. And they moved in together. They lived together for a few years. About a year and a half ago, they got married at a venue spot because they couldn't get married in a United Methodist church. They also wanted to get married legally, so they went off to another state to get married in a state that would recognize their union because their own home state doesn't recognize same-sex marriages. They don't have any children yet, but they're also finding out it's going to be pretty costly for the two of them because they're going to have to go through non-traditional means to get pregnant. For many of us, you think about it, that is, is not by any means our traditional values-laden kind of relationship for two people. The youngest sister completed high school, went to college, graduated, started career. During high school and college, had a total of two boyfriends. The second one she fell in love with, got engaged to, and married. But they were a couple that wanted to hold to some of our traditional kinds of values. So they determined that they would not live together prior to marriage. They did not want to have sex prior to marriage. They planned a very traditional church wedding, got married, moved in together after that, did all the things that young couples do. They got a dog to practice on before children, right? So they have a big dog that they're trying to raise at the moment. They're planning on their family and what's next for them. And most of us would say that the younger sister is the one who did things the right way because that's the way we judge relationships. That's what our traditional nursery rhyme, great play school rhyme, has taught us to think. If you take a moment and read the book of Discipline, you would discover that we are a traditional values-laden church, especially around marriage and human sexuality. We plainly state that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's what God intends, and that's all the United Methodist Church will solemnize, is the relationship between a man and a woman. We also extended this understanding to ordination as well. So only heterosexual persons are eligible for marriage and ordination in the United Methodist Church. Believe it or not, two out of the three sisters in my story would actually qualify to be married in a United Methodist Church and to be ordained in a United Methodist Church. One of them, though, at the moment, stands outside. If you think about it, it's because we find ourselves as a church discussing this topic from some different kinds of polar opposites of things. But today, our, our task is to kind of understand how we've gotten 
to this point? What is it about the church that has provided this conundrum for us, this, this vice that so many churches find themselves in, pressed by both sides of this issue? If you read the, the 2016 Book of Discipline, I'm sure every single one of you have one of these on your shelf at home, right? Any of you suffer from insomnia? I've got the cure for you. It's right here in my hand. Read it for a little bit. But inside our discipline, we have some very specific language about our understanding regarding humans, in particular, and human sexuality. If you read paragraph 162, titled The Social Community, it says this, The rights and privileges a society bestows upon or withholds from those who comprise it indicate the relative esteem in which that society holds particular persons and groups of persons. We, the United Methodist Church, affirm all persons as equally valuable in the sight of God. We therefore work towards societies in which each person's value is recognized, maintained, and strengthened. We support the basic rights of all persons to equal access to housing, education, communication, employment, medical care, legal redress for grievances, and physical protection. We deplore acts of hate or violence against any groups or persons based on race, color, national origin, ethnicity, age, gender, disability, status, economic condition, sexual orientation, gender identity, or religious affiliation. Our respect for the inherent dignity of all persons leads us to affirm, to call for the recognition, protection, and implementation of the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. If you flip over a couple pages back, you go back to paragraph 140, we have some very specific language on inclusiveness in our church as well. It says that we recognize that God made all creation and saw that it was good. As a diverse people of God who bring special gifts and evidences of God's grace to the unity of the church and to society, we are called to be faithful to the example of Jesus' ministry to all persons. Inclusiveness means openness, acceptance, and support that enables all persons to participate in the life of the church, the community, and the world. Therefore, inclusiveness denies every semblance of discrimination. The services of worship of every local United Methodist Church shall be open to all persons. You hear this kind of language in our book of discipline that says to you that we are a church that is an open church. We have an ideology of being a church that is open to all people. How many of you know what our slogan is? It begins, Open Hearts. Open minds, open doors, right? We want to be an open, inclusive kind of church. That is our social principles. That is our slogan. They would lead you to believe that we are a church that is open to all people, regardless of their age, their race, their gender, their class, or their sexual orientation, that we are an inclusive community until you get to our language on marriage and ordination. And then we sound duplicitous in who we proclaim to be and what we actually say. Part of this is is that we as a church find ourselves ingrained in an understanding of scripture and tradition that presumes heterosexuality as the norm and all else as abnormal. 
And we continue to perpetuate that tradition and that scriptural teaching. Genesis chapter 1 simply says that God created male and female, the complementary components needed for procreation. God commands male and female to go and to reproduce. And for nearly 6,000 years of human history, the world has assumed heterosexuality as the norm, the way in which procreation happens, especially for a male heir in the family. As the only sexual um, relationship that God has ordained and blessed, and as the natural inclination of all human beings. That has been the history of humanity regarding this. But theologically, we've also added some layers onto it as well. Augustine of Hippo is the father of interpretation on human sexuality. This is a guy from the 4th and 5th century. All right? He's the one that gave us our interpretation on human sexuality. We've inherited this through our teachings in the church. He taught that original sin or sin nature is passed from generation to generation through sexual activity. He thought that sex should be forsaken. There's no way that you should ever see sex as a way of human fulfillment or pleasure. It is for procreation only. And if you're not procreating, then you avoid sexual contact. That was Augustine's teaching. The Gnostics also influenced the early church as well. Gnostic philosophy. Gnostic philosophy taught that flesh was bad, spirit was good. Sexual desire and pleasure were bad according to the Gnostics. If you indulged in it too much, it could lead you further into sinful behaviors like lust and greed and anger and envy. Instead, spirit was good. Spirit was what you wanted to preserve. That's what you wanted to pursue. So you put aside your sexual desires so that you can spend all of your time pursuing the things of the spirit. You wonder why people went to the desert and became ascetics. It was because of this kind of philosophy. Now, we also know that recently in psychology and and physiology, we're beginning to disprove some of these assumptions that we've held on to for millennia, right? Today, we recognize that not everybody is born heterosexual. And today, we also speak openly about the fact that not everybody is born capable of reproducing. These are elements that help us understand that this is a little bit more complicated than just the simple things that we have settled in on in our norms. But our beloved church, the United Methodist Church, continues to choose to affirm heterosexuality as our legitimate and only covenant relationship. Which again makes me say that we sound like we are proclaiming one thing and practicing something else. Let's let's think about how we got here as a church real quick. Just some history for you to understand how we as a church have kind of found ourselves in the conversation but not really having a good conversation, right? For generations, as I said, the discussion of sexuality was avoided. You didn't talk about such things in polite company. Church was polite company. Historically, this was a private matter that you discussed only at home, behind closed doors, and it was for adults only, right? This is the way that we understood it until the 1960s and the 1970s when the gay and lesbian rights movement began. And in that time, homosexuality came out of the closet and became public discourse for us. 
Every four years, the United Methodist Church gathers in what's called General Conference. Many of you are aware of this. It is the main gathering of the body of Christ called the United Methodists from around the world. About 1,800 folks gather for our general conferences every four years. Any of you remember what happened in 1968? Uh, some of you weren't alive yet, so no. You, Marty, you might remember what happened in 1968. So history for United Methodism in 1968, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Evangelical United Brethren joined together to become the United Methodist Church, what we find today, right? What you might miss out on is in 1968, the General Church ordered a study on human sexuality. That was our first one in 1968. Four years later, they came back and they added a statement to the Book of Discipline. It is the one that says that homosexuals are no less than heterosexuals, are persons of sacred worth who need the ministry and the guidance of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment. We added that language along with an amendment to it that had the language that says, although we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider the practice incompatible with Christian teaching. We added both of those statements in the exact same time in 1972 to the Book of Discipline. From there, we began our conversation around it. So we began to try to figure out how to rescind what was considered to be hurtful language, and it failed in 1976. Actually, we added more language to the discipline that said that the general church could not use any of its funds to promote or donate to any gay or lesbian caucus or group so that they might promote the acceptance of gay and lesbian folks. We went even further right in our restriction of funds. Four years later, in 1980, language was introduced prohibiting ordination of people who were homosexual. That did not get affirmed until 1984, and that's where that language came in. Over the next eight years, they tweaked the language back and forth, and in 1992, they settled in on the language that is still in our discipline to this day, 2016. For those of you who watch General Conference or hear anything about it, you know that there is a group of people who consistently battle against our church regarding this very exclusive language. And every year they have demonstrations on the floor of the General Conference. They take up time on the General Conference floor, but cannot and have not been able to sway the church to change its language. And so we have... We have gone through some kind of alternate routes now to push the church towards change. Not winning the day at General Conference, clergy and laity have resorted to other means to provoke the church to change its stance on marriage and ordination so that we might now include persons who are self-avowed and practicing people in same-sex committed relationships. They have resorted to what is called ecclesiastical disobedience. You've heard the term civil disobedience, social disobedience, right? This is church disobedience. So these are folks who are willingly violating our covenant and our discipline, the vows that we make at ordination. There are several cases out there on the landscape. You've probably read of some of these, heard of some of these. We had a pastor in Wisconsin who officiated a same-sex union, which is prohibited by our discipline. She was charged by our, our church judicial system for that. And so she decided at that time she might as well just reveal to her bishop that she's also in a same-sex relationship. 
So not only did she officiate a union, she also came out at the same time. Trial concluded, and at the end of it, she was suspended for 20 days and then came back to her parish. Another pastor in eastern Pennsylvania presided over the same-sex union of his son. He was also charged, tried, and eventually stripped of his credentials as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. But the Judicial Council, upon review, used a technicality to reverse the ruling and gave him his credentials back. There's a retired bishop by the name of Melvin Talbert. Most of you have never met him, probably don't know him, but... Melvin Talbert's very much on the the social progressive side of this issue. He was invited not too long ago to come to Alabama and preside over a same-sex union. It was not his Episcopal area, and he's retired from practicing ministry, right? The presiding bishop of the annual conference in Alabama asked him not to come, but he went anyway and presided over the union. But nothing happened to him because he's retired. October 17, 2011, 162 clergy, 162 clergy, and 732 laity from 74 congregations in New York State and Southern Connecticut announced their intention to violate the discipline and go ahead and start officiating weddings for same-gender unions. They were participating in a project called We Do Methodist Living Marriage Equality. Other petitions have been circulating around the United Methodist Church calling for more and more ecclesial disobedience. Clergy and laity alike are signing and and vowing that they will participate. Most of you may be more familiar with, with a current case that's on the landscape, and it deals with one of our bishops, Karen Oliveto. She is from the Western Jurisdiction of the United Methodist Church. After our last general conference, when their jurisdiction met, She was actually elected and consecrated as a bishop. But what everybody knows about her as well is when she came to ordination, she was also proclaiming to be in a same-gender relationship. She was ordained and now consecrated, having never gone away from that union or given up that. And so this, of course, got challenged by several of the jurisdictions, including our own jurisdiction. How can she be a person who violates our discipline willingly and announces this, and not only be ordained, but then consecrated a bishop to serve. This Friday, believe it or not, the Judicial Council's ruling will actually be announced on her case and the legitimacy of her appointment to the Episcopacy, among other things. You get the sense of the struggle that we as a church find ourselves in between polar left and polar right. There's an old African saying that says, when two elephants wrestle, only the grass suffers. Do you get that? One of the readings of the books that I was reading, they asked this question, when Christ is divided, who bleeds? In the Gospel of John, the writer quickly says these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Notice it does not say that God loves some of us and not love others of us. The Greek word for world is cosmos, which literally means creation and by extension all of humanity. 
God cannot love just some of us and not love others. God loves all of us according to the Gospel of John. Jesus' death and resurrection proves God's love that is for all people. And we proclaim that God's first response to all humans is the response of love. Paul reminds us that we as a people should no longer think of ourselves in categories either. He says in a society that provides itself on division socially, economically, sexually, and racially, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, we are all equals. We are no longer male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. In Christ, we are all one. We are all the same. The question I want to ask you is this. Does that include people who go by the letters LGBTQ or I? I'm wondering how many of you came this morning anticipating that this would be this complicated of an issue, right? Maybe a few of us. It gets even more complicated when you read and you understand. I've got four books up here on the the rail. You're more than welcome to look at them. I've read all four of them for this conversation. They're dense, they're thick, they go all across the map on it. But we need to understand a little bit better each side of this issue. So next week we're going to talk about the right side of our church, the more traditional side of our church. It's represented in movements called the Good News Movement or the New Wesleyan Covenant Association. We need to understand the perspective from which that part of our church comes as well as the following week talking about the reconciling ministries, our inclusive side of the church that wants to move more towards a progressive and inclusive nature. We need to understand that side of the church because it's only there that we can have a good conversation. It's only there that we can listen and discern and find out if we can really truly remain silent any longer. So I'm going to invite you now to a time of prayer. Would you join me? Righteous God, your mercy awaits us when we return to you in meekness and repentance. Cleanse us from selfishness, falseness, judgmentalism, that which separates us from your fellowship and fellowship with one another. Through your atoning love, we ask that you heal the brokenness in our lives and in our world. And with wholeness restored, help us to live for the coming of your Son, our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.